Technological advances have made flying more enjoyable, easier, and safer. Flying a plane with the latest glass panel equipment or even an ADS-B receiver and an iPad is amazing. But before GPS, there were places just outside the United States where even 1950s technology didn't exist. Today, we'll hear a back-to-basics story of how pilotage, a plotter, and a protractor kept a pilot legal and safe. On this episode of I Laughed, I learned about flying from that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder. My guest today is Roger Keach, an engineering professor and flight instructor who, while flying doctors on a medical mission, got delayed and just about ran out of daylight 400 miles south of the border in Mexico. We'll get to that story right after this message from Avemco. Stability. If you're like most pilots, that's a word that's important. And it's important to Avemco Insurance. You'll instantly save 5% off your annual premium just by being an iLaft listener. Save up to 25% with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. To learn more, call 800-338-8705 or go to avemco.com flying. Now, I learned about flying from that. Roger Keach, I am so glad you're here with us on the I Laughed podcast. Welcome. Well, it's my pleasure, Rob. Glad to be here. You talked about your first flight experience being one in an Aronka champ, and it really did change your life, didn't it? Oh, it sure did. Uh, when the instructor got out, I was so excited. I took off with full carburetor heat. But since he weighed 200 pounds, why, the champ still responded quite nicely. Then I got up there in the pattern, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to get down on my own skill. And that was quite a experience. But the tail dragger idea of a basic airplane like that is, is just very, very important to have those basic skills. I believe that someone should learn in a tail dragger. You were also, at one point, teaching there in California, teaching, in, uh, teaching mechanical engineering. And aeronautical engineering. I taught uh, aerodynamics. I taught uh, aircraft design as well as mechanical engineering uh, physics, which is mainly Newtonian physics, which includes the study of motion and the forces involved in motion. And that could take us down a rabbit trail we'd never make it back from. But you also became a flight instructor. Yes. Uh, well, you see, I, I got all my advanced ratings on the GI Bill, which included the commercial, the instrument, as well as multi-engine and flight instructor. That way, because I already had a degree in mechanical engineering, so I could just burn it up in flight training. Before we move on, let me say thanks for your service. In which branch did you serve? I was drafted into the Army, and being a, already a graduate, they classified me as an engineer and sent me to work at Rocky Mountain Arsenal making nerve gas and designing uh, 
chemical munition uh, production lines uh, oh my. for $90 a month. 90 bucks a month. Well, uh, as I a did fl- get one stripe finally. <laughs> and that's good to know. The the flight instructor at 90 bucks a month, that's not a lot of money, but flight instructing probably wasn't um, a very huge income stream for you or was it? Well, the fact that they paid for the airplane and I got the flight experience, no, I started at $5 an hour. And how many students did you train over your career? I figured I trained about 25 students, but they included one who became a American airline captain and one who became a space shuttle commander. Who was that? Rick Sturkoff. My goodness. Now that is exciting. Congratulations on helping introduce him to to aviation. That's very cool. And on top of flight instruction, you found another outlet for your flying, and that was doing mission work. Yes. uh, Missions of Baja, they would fly doctors and dentists from here down to 400 miles south of the border. And by working with them, I got to fly in some pretty high-performance aircraft. When you say high-performance, does that mean King Airs or what kind of planes? Well, I had gotten my multi on an Aztec, and the mission owned a very sick old Aztec. So (laughs) their rules were that anytime there was a mission flight, they had to have a multi-engine pilot in the right-hand seat, so I ended up being that person. When you say old and sick Aztec, can you describe what old and sick means? Well, the right engine not only burned oil, but it overheated. And we would have to, say, climb up to 3,000 feet and then cruise for a while at reduced power, let the engine cool down, get out of the red, and then we could climb back up to additional altitude. So with that kind of massaging of the procedures, did that help it? Well, uh, even then, it would not climb without overheating. Okay. That raises a red flag for me because you said you were flying 400 miles into Mexico on an airplane that had a sick engine. Yes, and there were some people in the mission that would refuse to get on board that airplane. Ah, Gotcha. Because it had a history that I was unaware of. But the mission that you guys did, and and I guess you transported doctors down there, it was a medical mission and helped people who would not otherwise have had the medical treatments that they needed. Those doctors would get there on about Friday noon. They would work till midnight that night, get up Saturday morning, work till midnight that night up, and then we'd leave Sunday morning. Tell me about what the normal schedule was, because you started in California, and then the trip down involved a couple of, well, at least one stop. But tell me how that normal scenario worked. The normal scenario was that I had a friend who was a dentist, and he would fly down Thursday night, pick me up, and another dentist friend of mine, and we'd fly down to Corona, California, and stay overnight there. I did some checking. Corona is about 40 miles east of L.A. or Anaheim and 70 miles north of San Diego. That's Thursday night. Friday, then, the long flight begins. 
Tell me about your route of flight for the trip down to Mexico. Okay, it was all just by pilotage. We would go from Corona to Mexicali. That's just down underneath El Centro. So you'd go down by Naval Air Facility El Centro and and uh, Imperial Airport and then get right across the border and land there to what, clear customs and all of that? Then we would clear customs. We'd refuel because the fuel was much cheaper there. <laughs> and from there, we would fly 400 miles south to uh, Vizcaino, which was in the middle of the Vizcaino Desert and just 50 miles from... Uh, Guerrero Negro, where the California whale goes down to give birth. On a normal trip, now you talked all pilotage. You had a fairly well-equipped airplane. The Aztec probably had all the stuff that it needed to fly, had the VORs and everything. But down in Mexico, those nav aids and where you were going, they were not as effective. Right. The Loran system was the latest, and we ran out of Loran chain uh, just 50 miles south of Mexicali. And I do need to ask, what year was this that this took place? This was actually on Pearl Harbor Day, 1990. Before GPS, Loran gone, VORs gone. Was the weather good enough throughout the flight that you could do it by pilotage, or did you have to do dead reckoning, or explain that? Well, that's exactly why we took the route we did. It was always foggy on the west coast of the Baja Peninsula, so we went on the east coast. Now, what we did is from Mexicali, we followed the Colorado River down to the Gulf of California and then followed the east coast of Baja down to uh, a point, uh, Puente Finale, and then we would turn about 10 degrees to the west, and we would see two dry lakes that were brown way off in the distance, and we would line up with those and take that flight path to Highway 1 on the west coast. Fly down Highway 1 to Gran Negro, and then fly Highway 150 miles inland to Vizcaino and land the airstrip a private airstrip. When I looked, Roger, at ForeFlight and looked at the aerial view, you said airstrip. You weren't kidding because there this was not uh, all the way down there were there were airstrips that were just like st- flat areas cut out with what looked like a runway, but there was no pavement or anything on those. Well, there were a lot of uh, runways paved and otherwise, but they were private or military, and we were not allowed to land at them. We'd be arrested if we did. Okay, well, let's go to December 7th, 1990, Pearl Harbor Day. It's, uh, it's winter time, and you start from, you get to Mexicali, and... You were, I think, in the right seat uh, of the Aztec. Is that correct? Yes. What happened as you were getting ready to leave for your final destination in the Aztec after you'd fueled up and cleared customs? We tried to start the right engine, and it wouldn't start. The starter motor was broken. So you're in Mexico, and you're stuck. How did you begin to make the best of a bad situation? Well, the 
mission leader, Carlos, he spoke Spanish uh, so fluently and English so fluently that uh, he felt he had to take control of the situation and get a, a rebuilt starter. So they started looking. Remember, Mexicali is just the other side of the border from Calexico, and Calexico is in California. So that that's where they first started looking for a rebuilt starter. The problem is all of this work delayed us. So what he did, he sent the Comanche down because we had about 10 airplanes in that flight. Oh, it was a big, it was a gaggle of, a, of airplanes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. We, we had probably uh, uh, 40 uh Doctors, dentists, dental assistants, uh, had an eye surgeon, just a lot of different personnel. The Comanche, with a mission director, Carlos, was already on its way. You were now going to need the Comanche to replace the Aztec. What did you do? We called him, said, hey, take your doctors and dentists down to Vizcaino, turn around and come right back because we have a disabled Aztec. He completed his half of the mission, came back, and then what happened? Well, remember, it was about a two-hour flight, 400 miles. Mm -hmm. And so it took him four hours, actually about three and a half hours before he returned. And, of course, the mission director then said, well, look, I've got to get down there. So, And the pilot of who'd taken the Comanche down was also an A&P, so he was supposed to stay and work on the Aztec. And the mission director said, Roger, you're going to take me down in the Comanche. So we knew we had a minimum amount of time. So we refueled the Comanche, hopped in and left. And this is an airplane that you had had plenty of experience in. It was not unfamiliar to you. So you were ready to fly the plane without any, well, without had, any difficulty. I had flown it before and I had uh, been in partnership with the Comanche 180 up here in San Luis. I love that airplane. <laughs> they, they are good. No, no doubt about it. At the time that all this took place, you, you made mention just a moment ago of the fact that delays and that was something that was about to play a significant part in, in what developed over the next couple of hours. From a time standpoint, when you were ready to crank the Comanche and go south, what time of day was it? Uh, oh, gee, it must have been um, about 3.30 or something. And I was kind of deluded in that the pilot that returned said, hey, it's beautiful all the way down and back. So that kind of seduced me that I wouldn't have any weather-related problems. So I did not check the weather and the time of sunset. There's the issue. You took off. When did you start to realize that you might have a problem with daylight? And why would not having daylight be a problem when you got an airplane that can fly at night? Well, it was when we got down to about Puente Finale to where I lined up with those two uh, dry lake beds <clears throat> that I noticed the sun was getting pretty low. And uh, I told Carlos, the director, I said, you know, we may have to land after dark. He says, no, that's illegal. And I it's said, well, illegal gonna... to, is it illegal to fly a plane in Mexico after dark? A single engine. 
is illegal. Ah, you have to have that's a the, twin. That's the different rule. Twin, you could do it. But did did the runway down at your destination have lights? No, but we could have lined up some cars, and uh, that would have been good enough for me. I'd flown. I had enough night flying experience to where it wouldn't take much. But the fact remained, you would have been illegal, and there's a good chance that the word probably would have gotten back oh, to the yes. authorities. Oh yes, they had shut down that airport before because of irregularities. Wow. How did you handle this problem of this setting sun and the daylight that was beginning to evade you? Well, I knew that I had to find out how how much more daylight I had. And so I looked at that sun and I asked a pilot friend in back, I said, do we have a plotter on board? And he said, yes. I said, hand it up front. You're talking about the plastic see-through plotter that we used to use when we were students putting lines on our sectional charts when we were doing pilotage from you one got place it. to another. You got it. But it includes a... Um, a, a protractor. A, a half of a protractor, yes, with a hole in the center. How did you employ that to your advantage? Well, I had taught many times in my flight instruction to use the airplane to uh, figure out the solution to a problem in navigation. So what I did is I put the right wingtip underneath the sun and the nose was probably heading, remember uh, at that time of year, why the sun does not set due west. Correct. Was, so um, my nose was probably sitting at about, uh, oh, 165 degrees. And I had Carlos hold the protractor upside down, right parallel with the top of the cowling, and put a pencil in the hole. And then look where the shadow fell. And when we did that, the shadow fell at about 160 degrees, which meant it was 20 degrees above the horizon. And essentially, it was a, a poor man's sextant. And with 20 degrees, knowing that the Earth rotates 15 degrees per hour, that gave me 1.3 hours or an hour and 20 minutes. Knowing that I was about 200 miles from the, our destination, why I had to increase the airspeed. At what but, altitude were you flying at that point? Well, we were at 10,500. So consequently, I increase the power that was uh, maximum cruise and started coming down at about 100 feet a minute, knowing that at 100 feet a minute, 10,000 feet would be 100 minutes. That'd be plenty of time. And with that airspeed, and the Piper has a special calculator that you can rotate to get put in temperature, altitude, and so forth, and get true airspeed. Gotcha. So we... We got a true airspeed of 200 miles an hour, and I figured that would take us there. And it and, did. And it did. So you landed, and then, because it's so flat there, the sun disappeared, and what else disappeared? Well, you don't have any twilight there. Remember, there is no uh, mountain range in Baja, California. Uh, you don't have a continental divide as you do on the mainland. 
And so consequently, it is flat. There are no mountain peaks to reflect the sun when it goes below the horizon. Therefore, there's no twilight. We landed into a sun that was right on the horizon. And by the time we taxied in, uh, got our baggage, tied down the plane, it was pitch black. Amazing. The protractor, the plotter, and a very, very simple fix saved your bacon. We'll be back to talk more with Roger Keach right after we take this break. Personal service. Two words that are important to a consumer, and they're just as important to Avemco Insurance. The Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialists understand pilots. They'll answer your questions. They're empowered to solve problems, and they can even approve coverage based on your individual situation, not what some rule book says. Call Avemco at 800-338-8705, 800-338-8705, and learn about coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now, back to I Left. We're back with Roger Keach, who used a very simple method and some basic math to determine how fast he'd have to go over a couple hundred miles and land and still be legal going into some other country. Roger, you learned some good lessons from that flight, didn't you? Oh, yes. And one of those was it had to do with, had to deal with working outside your own country and knowing regulations. Right. I didn't realize that landing single engine at night was illegal in Mexico. Once you realized that and Carlos, your mission director, had you on the way, you realized you had a problem. But all of the fancy stuff that you had in the airplane, VORs and Loran, none of that was useful. And it came down to employing basic non-electronic techniques that saved you that day. Well, we just had to determine how much more daylight we had. And there was only one way to do it. The plotter, the pencil, some science, technology, engineering, and math. Explain to us once again how you worked this out. Okay, I put the right wing tip beneath the sun and made the aircraft level. We held the protractor above the instrument panel so that we knew that it was parallel with the wings. We then put a pencil in the hole in the center of the protractor, held it perpendicular to the protractor, and looked where the shadow lie. The shadow was approximately at 160 degrees, which is 20 degrees below 180. 20 degrees above the horizon meant that the sun traveling at 15 degrees per hour, that's 360 degrees in 24 hours, you can figure that out readily, gave us 1.3 hours. That's one hour and 20 minutes. The problem then was that I had 200 miles to go, and yet I was only doing 180 miles an hour. But thankfully, I had a Comanche that uh, allowed me to turn altitude into speed, airspeed, and make it up to 200 miles an hour, and we made it just in time. In fact, I think I was still a couple of thousand feet above sea level when we got there. That is amazing. I 
I have been taught by instructors most recently when I got checked out in my airplane just a few years ago. Uh, the instructor talked about the 3-6 the rule, and that's to determine your top of descent and the number of thousands of feet uh, times 3 uh, determines the number of miles out you can start a VFR descent without a GPS, without all the stuff. And those basic things are worth knowing and remembering and having at the ready in case all the uh, fancy glass panel and the EFIS and all the other electronic stuff fails. Well, I just want to mention that I did take a biannual flight review three years ago, <laughs> and he had to really teach me GPS. <laughs> Roger Keach, thank you for sharing this lesson on the I Learned About Flying from that podcast. It's a good one, and we appreciate your time with us today. As we close out Episode 10 of I Laughed, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe. Go to www.flyingmag.com and select I Laughed Podcast from the drop-down menu. Tell your friends, too. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder, Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. <laughs>